Well, I've got something I want to admit to you this morning. I'm very self-reliant. It's not surprising if you know me. I grew up in an Asian-American home with parents with a strong work ethic. I'm the first child of two children. So as you know, the oldest child tends to be more hyper-responsible. I have a strong work ethic, and you add all these factors together, I tend to be highly self-reliant. All these factors add up to me knowing what I want to handle every day, knowing my agenda for the day, knowing what I want to get done. So most days I wake up and I think, okay, let's just get to it. Let's get going with with our day. I wonder if you find yourself being self-reliant just like me. You depend on yourself, and of course, all of us need help from other people, whether it's our family or our friends, but for the most part, you might be like me, self-reliant, and so living life my own way. Now, the problem with self-reliance is it's insufficient when we run into suffering. When we rely on ourselves, when difficult times come, we find out that it's just not enough. To rely on ourselves. I need others in order to make it through this life, no matter how difficult it is. In particular, I need help outside of myself. I need someone to give me strength when things are not going all that well. So I turn to God if I'm a Christian, and I ask him for help. I pray for the Lord to grant me strength in times where things are difficult. Now you think about it. When things are not going so well, people tend to pray more, don't they? I remember being a chaplain in a hospital, and I run into unbelievers, and that they seemed to welcome me praying for them, even though they weren't prayerful people. But they knew when something was going wrong that they needed help from outside of themselves. Well, what do they say? There are no atheists in foxholes. Well, it's true for all of us. When we're going through a difficult time, we need help outside of ourselves, so we turn to the Lord. I wonder what your trouble is or what difficulties you're facing today. Maybe you're in a difficult marriage and you're struggling with your spouse. Maybe there's a chronic illness that you've been facing for months or maybe even years. Maybe it's unemployment. Maybe there's a difficult relationship that you have at work or with a family member that you're struggling with. Whatever your difficulties, whatever you're struggling with, we want to learn today whether when we face difficult seasons, we're going to rely on God or whether we're going to rely on ourselves. Whether we're going to turn to God to help us or whether we're going to turn to ourselves to get through those difficult seasons. So this morning, the author of 1 Kings wants to help us as we consider how the fear of the Lord matters as we fight for survival in a difficult season. If you got a Bible, why don't you turn to 1 Kings chapter 18. <coughs> 1 Kings chapter 18. We're going to see in a difficult season, the fear of the Lord helps us to, number one, be courageous, number two, to obey, and number three, fight self-reliance. Now, I come from a congregation of neurotic note-takers, So if you're curious about an outline, that's our outline for this morning. In a difficult season, the fear of the Lord helps us to, number one, be courageous, number two, to obey, 
and number three, to fight self-reliance. My prayer for you is as you face difficulties in this fallen world, you'll learn to fear the Lord God Almighty and trust in his Son, Jesus Christ. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and so a fight for survival in a fallen world can't begin with ourselves, but the one who made us and redeemed us. Before we read chapter 18, I want to just give a little background to what we're about to look at. So flip over to chapter 16 for just a moment. 1 Kings chapter 16. If you look at 1 Kings 16, verse 29, you'll find Ahab becomes king over Israel, and he does what is often condemned of kings. He married a foreign wife. Now, do you know why that's a concern? Not because of racial issues like ethnicity or skin color in their day. No, foreign wives introduce foreign gods. They persuaded their husbands to turn away from the one true God and to worship other gods. That's why they were a problem. So it was with Ahab. Let's look at chapter 16, verse 31 to 33. It says, as, And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. So Ahab's worship of false gods angered the Lord God Almighty. And as the king and queen go, so also the people go. The nation of Israel is corrupted by worship of Baal. What we find is that God is going to do everything he can to win back the hearts of his servants. And to do that, the Lord begins by sending Elijah the prophet to announce a famine at the start of chapter 17. Look at chapter 17. It says, Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tish in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. Now why a famine? Why would God send Elijah to announce a famine? Well, rain was very important in agricultural society. Baal was the god of rain. (coughs) Excuse me. Can I grab a water? Thank you. (coughs) What better way for God to show who is really in charge than to take away the rain. That's how God would show that he's in charge of everything, to show that Baal, the god of rain, really would not live up to what he said. So with that background in mind, let's look at chapter 18, which you'll find in your pew Bibles. Point number one, the fear of the Lord helps me to be courageous. Chapter 18, verses 1 to 6. 
After many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the earth. So Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. (coughs) And now the famine was severe in Samaria. And Ahab called Obadiah, who was over the household. And now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. And when Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them (coughs) by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water. And Ahab said to Obadiah, go through the land to all the springs of water and to all the valleys. Perhaps we may find grass and save the horses and mules alive and not lose some of the animals. So they divided the land between them to pass through it. Ahab went in one direction by himself, and Obadiah went in another direction. So after three long years of famine, the word of the Lord comes to Elijah the prophet, who has been living in a land north of Israel called Sidon. And God commands Elijah, look there at verse 1, to return to Israel and go and see Ahab for some unspecified reason. Now, the promise offered is that when Elijah does return, God will once again send the rain on the land. And Elijah did what the Lord told him to do. He sets out to find Ahab. The news that God would once again bring rain must have been welcome news, because look there at verse 2. The famine had been very severe in Samaria. Now, verse 3, we're introduced to this character called Obadiah. This is not Obadiah, minor prophet, which is spoken about later in the Old Testament. This is a different Obadiah who is in charge of Ahab's household. You can think of Obadiah as Ahab's chief of staff, the king's right-hand man in all of his personal affairs. He was in charge of running the house and the staff. Now, if you watch Downton Abbey, this is Mr. Carson or Miss Hughes. (coughs) They're in charge of the entire household. Now, you can also think of Joseph, who was put in charge of Pharaoh's household. For those of you who work in the government, Obadiah is actually an example to you because he's a secular servant. He's someone who works for the government. He worked for the king, in fact. And he's put in this awkward position of working for a really hard king who is evil in his nature. Now, as the famine continued to get severe, there was threat of livestock dying in an agricultural society. Your livestock, your cows and horses and chickens and cattle and sheep and goats were extremely important for your survival. Obadiah was so important to the king that the king asked Obadiah to help him keep the animals alive. So look at verse 5. King Ahab has a plan. He wants to go throughout the land of Israel, look for the water and the grass to save the animals. Verse 6, they divided up the land and they headed in different directions. Now, in some of your Bibles, you'll notice three, halfway through verse 3, there's a parenthetical comment. Look there in verses 3 and 4. It says, Now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. And when Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah took a hundred prophets 
and hid them by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water. Now, it begins with this comment, Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. Or as some of your translations put it, he was a devout believer of the Lord. Now, do you fear God? Fear in the Bible is not describing something you're scared of, like a fear of heights or a fear of spiders or a fear of snakes. Fear, in fact, is describing honor, reverence, adoring, worshiping God, the Lord Almighty. That's what fear is in the Bible. If you fear the Lord greatly, it should lead you to do great things for God. That's what Obadiah did. At great risk to his life, look at what he did. He courageously hid a hundred prophets of the Lord in caves. He fed them bread and water in order to preserve their life and save them from the genocide of the queen who loved Baal and was deliberately eliminating any opposition to her God. If you fear the Lord greatly, it should lead you to make courageous choices in your life. Now, courageous acts don't come simply because you're a courageous person. It's not just because you have some noble characteristic. Courage is a reflection of the heart of one who greatly fears God. Now, I want you to picture me standing at a pool, in, in a pool, and I get in the water, and at that point, my four-year-old daughter is on the edge of the pool, and she's looking down at me, and she's considering whether she should jump into, into her dad's arms. Now, what would make her jump from the edge of the pool into the water into my arms? Is she a fantastic swimmer? Or is the water low so she has nothing to be scared of? Is she considering whether she trusts her dad or is she fearful of the water? Well, if her love and trust and reverence and respect for me, her dad, is greater than her fear of the water, guess what she's going to do? She's going to jump. She's going to go from the edge of the pool and she's going to jump into my arms. Well, if your fear of the Lord is greater then all of the difficulties that you face, then you're going to take risks on behalf of God. If your fear of God, if your honor and reverence and adoring of him is greater than any of the pressures you face in this life, then you're going to take risks for God in your life. If you fear God greatly, no matter what the difficulties are, it should lead you to do courageous things for him. If you fear God more than anything else, it should change the nature of your life. Your lack of courage, in fact, may be a reflection of where you're at spiritually. A superficial relationship with God will amount to a, a, a superficial spiritual life. And so if that happens to describe you, you should talk to one of the elders today. If you think, I'm not doing much for God, I should probably talk to an elder and figure out what's going on in my life. Now, if you fear God, then you should go ahead and fill in the blank. Is there a hard conversation that you need to have that you have been avoiding? Or is there something that you should do that you're, you're, you haven't been doing or something you shouldn't do that you should refrain from? Whatever it is, whatever it is, you should consider what the fear of the Lord means and how it should change the nature of your life, how it should help you. So 
I sometimes feel like a fool when it comes to evangelism. You know, my fear of other people make me reluctant to speak up for the Lord. And yet, if I feared God more than anything else, I wouldn't be scared to speak up. In my evangelism, I'd be bold. And so, my fear of God has helped me to say, do you know who Jesus Christ is? Do you know what the gospel is? And be more upfront in my evangelism when I tell others who I am and who God is and what God has done for them. The reality is in 2023, as religious freedom is being infringed on, it's going to take a lot more social courage for you to be a Christian in a culture that is very antagonistic towards Christianity. And so the fear of the Lord will come into play as the culture says it hates Christians Now you're going to have to live more boldly in order to be a witness for the gospel. If you fear the Lord greater than all of the pressures you face in a fallen world, it should lead you to be bold for God and to do greater things for God. So consider, what do I need to do? What should change in my life? How could I be more bold? Where you're going to need a greater fear of God is when you face the pressures that this world has to offer you. And so consider that for yourself today. Obadiah feared the Lord greatly, and that led him to do courageous things for God. But we should ask again our question, how does the fear of the Lord help me in this difficult season? And that brings us to point number two. In a difficult season, the fear of the Lord helps me, point number two, to obey even when things seem unjust. And that's verses 7 to 16. Look there with me in verses 7 to 16. And as Obadiah was on the way, behold, Elijah met him. And Obadiah recognized him and fell on his face and said, Is it you, my lord Elijah? And he answered him, It is I. Go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here. And he said, How have I sinned that you would give your servant into the hand of Ahab to kill me? As the Lord your God lives, there is no nation or kingdom where my Lord has not sent to seek you. And when they would say he is not here... He would take an oath of the kingdom or nation that they had not found you. And now you say, go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah's here. And as soon as I have gone from you, the spirit of the Lord will carry you. I know not where. And so when I come and tell Ahab and he cannot find you, he will kill me. Although I, your servant, have feared the Lord from my youth. Has it not been told, my Lord, what I did when Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord? How I hid a hundred men of the Lord's prophets by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water? And now you say, go tell the Lord, behold, Elijah's here, and he will kill me. And Elijah said, as the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, I will surely show myself to him today. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. Now look there at verse 7. 
Obadiah was on his way to find water and grass for the animals when he suddenly runs into Elijah. Now, think about this. Elijah makes the declaration in chapter 17, verse 1, that a famine will come in the land. And look at what happens. He's gone for three years. Three long years. And so when Obadiah runs into Elijah and Elijah appears out of nowhere, what does he do? Look there. He falls on the ground and asks, is it you, Elijah? Why is it? He's surprised. Verse 8, Elijah responds, it is I. Go tell Ahab that I'm back. Go tell your Lord. Behold, Elijah's here. Now, do you know who Elijah is? You read the entire chapter, and he seems like this super confident man. And in regards to his last two verses, verse 7 and 8, he suddenly saunters onto a sage, and he says, I'm back. I'm back after three years. And so go fetch Ahab, will you, for me? Now flip back to chapter 17 for just a minute. Elijah was a prophet of the Lord, which means he was appointed by God to speak on behalf of God to the Israelites and also to the king. And he lives this remarkable life. Look at chapter 17, verses 1 to 7. After he declares a famine, he goes to a ravine at God's command, and he, the Lord tells the ravens to feed him. Now, you could order Uber Eats this afternoon, and you'd be surprised if the ravens show up at your window delivering your dinner. Well, that's what the Lord does. He's in command of everything. And so, in order to feed his prophet, he sends ravens with food. Verses 8 to 16, he travels to Sidon, north of Israel, and meets a widow who is about to cook her last meal for herself and her son. And Elijah performs the first miracle by promising that her jar of flour and a jug of oil would not run out until the rain returns. And what he says comes to pass. And then verse 17 to 24. Look, the widow's son dies, and Elijah prays to the Lord, and the boy comes back to life. And why this is remarkable is that this is the first resurrection in all of the Bible. This is the first time the Lord uses a prophet in order to bring someone back to life. Elijah, up to now, has lived this extraordinary life with, with, with ravens and performing miracles and resurrections. And, and, and now, and now, look at what God's going to do with him. With God at his side, Elijah had good reason to be confident. Look at what God had done through Elijah already, and we anticipate what he'll do with Elijah in this chapter. Now look back at chapter 18. Elijah has returned to Israel, and we see in verse 9 that Obadiah gets frustrated with Elijah because of his ridiculous plan. He says, how have I sinned, or what have I done wrong if Obadiah goes and tells Ahab about Elijah, that Elijah was back, Ahab would kill Obadiah. Now, why is that? Consider what was happening while Elijah had been away for three years during the famine. Verse 10, Ahab was so desperate to find the prophet, he went to dozens of nations and kingdoms to track down Elijah. 
Ahab put out an all-points bulletin in order to find the prophet. He had nations swear that they hadn't seen the prophet, proclaim an oath that they hadn't seen him. He was desperate to find the prophet somewhere in order to get rid of this famine. In verse 12, because Elijah had been gone so long, Obadiah was concerned that if he told Ahab about Elijah, the spirit would carry Elijah away again, and so Ahab would get mad at Obadiah and kill him. Obadiah has been hiding prophets, and now it seems unjust for him who had not sinned against Elijah to die this death. Now, look at the logic of the text. Obadiah's argument with Elijah is, look at verse 9. It says, what have I done to you? How have I sinned against you? Verse 10, Ahab has, seen, has been searching for you for three years. Verse 12, I will tell Ahab, and you'll disappear again, and you'll leave me hanging. And then verse 12, the key word there in your ESV Bible is although. That's the hinge there. Although, and Obadiah then lays out what he's done for the Lord. Verse 12, I've feared the Lord since my youth. And verse 13, don't you know I've been faithfully hiding the prophets? Elijah's plan sounded ridiculous to Obadiah. Obadiah was disillusioned at Elijah's brilliant plan to send him waltzing into Ahab's courts without Elijah to die a pointless death. He felt it was unjust for him to have to die this kind of death considering all that he had done for the Lord. Now, I wonder if you have ever faced the same kind of juxtapositioning. On the one hand, you say, look at what I've done for you, Lord. And on the other hand, it's unfair. I don't like your plan for my life. You've tried to be a good spouse, and yet your marriage is not going so well. Or you parent faithfully, and yet... Your kids don't show any respect for you, or they give you attitude or disobey. Or you pour into your job, you're working very hard, and yet someone stabs you in the back at work. Someone gossips about you, or your boss gives you a hard time. Or you read your Bible, you come to church, you obey God, and yet your family and friends have mocked you for your faith. Or again, you read your Bible, you come to church, you, you, you do what God asked you, and yet you're struggling with some kind of sickness and you get into a bad car accident. Have you ever looked at God and said, God, I'm doing my best down here. I, I, I'm one of your children. I'm trying to do what you tell me to do. I am trying to be faithful with what you're asking me to do. And yet, fill in the blank. I get sick. I get in a car accident. My kids rebel against me. My coworkers gossip about me. And you think, this is so unfair. God, what are you doing to me? I've been trying to obey you, be faithful. 
Lord, why don't you hear my prayers? Why don't you do anything to help me? Sometimes you try so hard to do the right thing as a Christian. And yet, you face hard circumstances and you get disillusioned. And you think, God, this is so unfair. Why are you doing this to me? Verse 15, Elijah assures Obadiah that he is surely going to show himself to Ahab that very day. And remarkably, look at verse 16, look at what it says. Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him. Now you should pause for a moment and go, what? Wait a second, hold on. He just spent these last few verses complaining about going to see Ahab and worried about that he would be killed because Elijah wasn't coming with him. And the text simply says he just goes and tells him and obeys what Elijah asked him to do. Now, the assurance of Elijah probably helped Obadiah to go see the king. But you know what I think is much more significant in my mind? The text tells us multiple times that Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. (coughs) What helped him to face these difficult and what felt like unjust circumstances is that he feared God, and his fear of God helped him to obey despite the hard circumstances. In the end, Obadiah's fear of the Lord won out over his frustration with Elijah's plan. His fear of God helped him to be faithful and obey. He did face the king with the news of Elijah's return, even though he was convinced that Elijah would not show up and that Ahab would potentially kill him. In the end, Obadiah didn't let his disillusionment over Elijah's plan get the best of him. He obeyed the word of the Lord and did what God asked him to do. What should you do if you feel like God is being unfair to you? What should you do if you feel disillusioned in this life? What should you do if you're facing hard circumstances, and you feel disillusioned. God asks you to fear him first and most of all, and then consequently to obey. Fear the Lord and obey. So just think about it. Maybe you're in a difficult marriage this morning, and you don't know how you can keep moving forward. Well, trust God, fear him, and love and serve your spouse. Or maybe you're in a really difficult work situation right now. Well, trust the Lord with whatever he's asking you to do in your job. Be faithful to your job as a witness to your own Christian faith and simply obey what the Lord's asking you to do in that situation. Or maybe you're really struggling as a parent. You're just not sure how to keep going forward with a difficult situation with one of your children. 
Well, well, think through what the Lord asked you to do as a parent and just be faithful to that, trusting that he will bless whatever your efforts are. And the situations go on and on and on, the difficult circumstances, whether it's a health issue or some other thing that you're facing. Fear the Lord, trust him in those situations, and obey, no matter how much you feel disillusioned. Difficult seasons are God-given opportunities to grow in your trust of the Lord and remain faithful no matter what it is that you're facing in your life. We see that in difficult seasons, if we fear the Lord greatly, point number one, we should be courageous. And point number two, if we're disillusioned by circumstances, then we should still obey. But point number three we need to also learn to fight self-reliance. And that's verses 17 to 19. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is that you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I've not troubled Israel, but you have and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now, therefore, send and gather Israel to me at Mount Carmel, the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah, who eat at Jezebel's table. Ahab, upon hearing the news about Elijah's return, immediately heads out to find him and confront him. And then the man Ahab been searching for All these years, all over the globe, is finally back. So notice what he says there in verse 17. Is that you, O troubler of Israel? Or literally, is that you who's brought a curse upon Israel? Ahab had lived three long years uh, under this famine, and Ahab blames Elijah for his troubles. But Elijah turns it right back upon Ahab. Look at verse 18. He, had, he says, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now, remember the first commandment in the Ten Commandments, Exodus chapter 20. I'm the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth, you shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments." Now, according to Elijah, Ahab was his fault for the famine because the king had led the nation to follow the false gods of Baal and Asherah. Ahab was trying to blame Elijah, but Elijah knew who was the real troublemaker. Now, what we see is this earthly battle between a king and a prophet, but this is not ultimately about the two of them. The story is not about just these two men. In fact, what's the point of this story? It is to show who's in control of life and death 
and food and starvation. The Lord God Almighty, who sent Jesus to rescue us, who sent the prophet to tell the king of his evil sin, the Lord God is in charge of everything. He's sovereign over everything. He sent his son to die for us, and he sent his prophet to warn the king about his evil sin. He's showing beyond a shadow of a doubt who's really in charge. God is really in charge. What did the king and his wife believe? What did the Israelites follow in the king's footsteps? That Baal, the god of rain, was in charge. But we know that's not true because there was no rain in the land for three years. Hard circumstances and human suffering is often used by the Lord to reveal our hearts and show who or what we truly worship. What Ahab's life shows is that he didn't want to repent. He didn't fear the Lord. In fact, what it shows us is that he, in fact, was relying on himself. Unlike Obadiah, who feared the Lord greatly and was willing to take great risks for God, Ahab wanted to persevere by his own strength. Look at verses 5 and 6. Remember what it said? He set out to save all of the animals by scouring through the land for food and water. What would have served him much better was to forget about the animals and to turn his life back to the living God. All of Israel knew that Baal was dead because the supposed God of rain had not delivered. It was three years, and yet the foolish king wasn't willing to turn back to God. He continued to fight for survival by his own strength. Now, where is God asking you to stop relying on yourself and instead to turn back to him? The gospel is the good news that we're foolish, that we can't rely on ourselves, that we can't trust ourselves, but instead God sent his son to die on the cross for our sins <coughs> so that we instead can turn from ourselves and turn to him and trust that he can help us in our time of need. He can help us when things aren't going so well. He can help us when things are going so well. Because as sinners who are foolish, we, who rely on ourselves, we need God's help. Our sin puts us in a perilous place. It puts us in opposition to God and rebelling against him. And so God sent Jesus so that there was a way to reconcile with him. What better they than today to turn from your sins and trust that God has a better way for you? Now, if you're not a follower of Christ, what a good thing to come on a Sunday morning to join us in church with God's people. Now, you know, relying on yourself, like most of us do, like I admitted I do, is not a good way to live your life. Relying on yourself, especially when you go through hard times, is not a good way to try and get through this life. And you know that relying on yourself ultimately will end up in difficult situations where you find relying on yourself is just not sufficient. 
So why not giving up relying on yourself and turn to God and say to God, I need something more than myself. I need help with my life. Now, if you're a Christian, the same applies to you. In what ways have you built your life around your own efforts rather than turning to God and saying, God, I need your help? You might now look at Ahab and think, wow, he was a foolish king, wasn't he? The prophet warned him, and yet he still relied on himself by going scouring through the land for food and water. Well, you know, we're, we're all like Ahab. We all tend to rely on ourselves, have confidence in ourselves, do things our own way. And what we need to do is every morning when we get up, turn to the Lord and say, God, I want to give up my agenda. God, I don't want to rely on myself anymore. God, I need your help today. Every morning of every day, we need to ask God and fight for survival in a fallen world by, by turning to him and saying, Lord, will you help me today? God, will you give me strength today? God, will you sustain me today? Because I don't want my agenda to drive this day. I don't want my plans to be the way I live today. I want your plans and your will to dictate my life today. Maybe you don't feel like you need it, but I need it. Every morning, every morning. And even worse, I live in Washington, D.C. I'm surrounded by type A people. I'm surrounded by people who came to D.C. to conquer the world. So if there's ever a city that needs to hear, stop being self-reliant. It's the congregation and the city that we're in. Well, it's probably the same for you, isn't it? Stop relying on yourself and turn to the Lord today and say, Lord, I need your help today. Now, kids and teens, you have been so kind to listen to me so far, especially me coughing my way through most of the sermon. Here's what I want you to ask your parents today. At lunch, I want you to ask your mom and dad, how do you stop relying on yourself and how do you trust God with your life? Why don't you ask them over lunch how they trust Christ more than themselves, how they depend in Christ more than themselves, and see what kind of conversation you have with your parents and what you can learn from them today. Well, we should conclude In the end, what we find is a contrast between two men, between Obadiah, the Lord's prophet, uh, the, the Lord's servant who feared the Lord, who obeyed the Lord, and Ahab, who abandoned God in following the Baals and, and followed the false god, even though that false god failed to deliver the rain. King Ahab relied on himself. As you look at the days ahead, consider who you will be. Will you be a God-fearing man or woman who builds his or her life on a foundation of loving God and trusting him even when things get hard? Or will you foolishly or stubbornly rely on yourself? Now, I, I, I have the privilege of helping people through their life in difficult seasons as a counseling pastor. I often come alongside people when they're suffering the most. And what you find in suffering is that suffering peels the onion layers of your life 
and reveals what you're truly worshiping. What you often find is that people in suffering show themselves to either be worshiping themselves or really worshiping the Lord God. Suffering reveals what we're ultimately turned to in our life. And so as you consider yourself today, and as you prepare for the difficult seasons that may come, or you think about the difficult season you're facing right now, consider, will you turn to God and trust in Him ultimately for your life? Will you trust in Jesus to be sufficient for your life as He died on the cross for your sins? Or will you rely on yourself? Who will you trust in this day? Let's pray together. Lord, we know that trusting in ourselves is not worth it. We know that trusting in you, Lord, is much better than trusting in ourselves. So help us to do that through the strength of your Son this morning. We pray in your Son's name. Amen.